Welcome back to the Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning Podcast, episode number 89. With Dr. Eric Wan, a Harvard-trained doc turned Navy flight surgeon before becoming CTO of Boeing Aerospace. Now he's the president and CMO of Wave Neuroscience, a company dedicated to creating a world where every individual, regardless of socioeconomic status, can improve their mind. Eric and the team at Wave Neuroscience are the world-leading experts in brain health, brain injuries, PTSD, depression, anxiety, among others. The tech they've pioneered involves using computational analytics to solve problems that have never been tackled before in the mental health space, and they are doing it non-invasively with no medications of any kind. My name is Andrea Samadhi, and if you're new here, I'm a former educator who created this podcast to bring the most current neuroscience research along with high-performing experts who've risen to the top of their field with specific ideas or strategies that you can implement immediately, whether you're an educator or in the corporate space to take your results to the next level. If we want to improve our social, emotional, and cognitive abilities, it all starts with an understanding of our brain. I feel so lucky to have been introduced to Dr. Juan from another podcaster, Luke Dupron, a former actor turned lifestyle and fitness entrepreneur who told me that I needed to take a look at the Wave Neuroscience team. Luke sent me a link to the podcast he did with Dr. Eric Juan and Navy SEAL Ned Mason. If you want to listen to it, you can access it in the show notes. I was blown away with what Eric and his team are doing. If you've been interested in our past few episodes where we talk about the importance of looking at the brain to improve performance, you'll know that this is not just something that's for those involved in special operations in the military, elite athletes, or for people who are struggling with a brain disorder. The WAVE neuroscience team is dealing more and more with mainstream people like you and me who are looking to improve their performance. Welcome, Dr. Juan. Thank you so much for agreeing to come on the podcast to share what you're doing to help the world to improve their brains and minds with this groundbreaking technology. Oh, thank you so much. I, I'm really honored to, to be here with you and uh, looking forward to the conversation. So before we get into the questions, Eric, I wanted to just let you know that I watched your interview with Drew Prowitt on his Broken Brain podcast, and I'm so glad that I watched that first because I actually just interviewed Dr. Andrew Newberg. He's the director of research at the Marcus Institute over at the Integrative Health, Thomas Jefferson University Hospital, and he's dedicated his whole life, actually, since he was a teenager, to studying what he calls neurotheology, or connecting the brain to our spiritual and religious nature. So when I was listening to the podcast and I heard that in your early career, you actually considered being a priest, I thought, <laughs> well, it's not an accident that I'm interviewing you right after Dr. Newberg's um, podcast. So, uh, you know, just before we get into that, how did you actually decide, you know, to go into medicine to help with your mission and purpose to help people with mental health, something that's so important these days instead of going that path? 
Yeah. So, um, so first, thanks for, uh, for the kind words. And I listened to that podcast actually yesterday as well. <clears throat> and it was fascinating because I didn't know, I didn't know there was a, <clears throat> excuse me, a scientific discipline of neurotheology. So you know, I found that fascinating. And then the discussion about spec scan, um, you know, I think all of these new sort of neuroimaging technologies are interesting because there's, I think, a convergence towards um, some unifying principles uh, when it comes to neuroscience that is, um, I think, really exciting and um, uh, feels like we're, we're sort of pioneering uh, some new territory. But, um, you know, for me, uh, part of the reason to go into medicine was um, it, it was sort of a convergence of both uh, science, which I loved, and I just had sort of passion for um, kind of learning uh, in, in that specific discipline, uh, but also sort of it, it touched that vocational piece of wanting to help people um, and sort of achieving people's best health um, What was part of the goal too. And so medicine was kind of a natural fit. Definitely. Well, that does make sense. And and what's interesting is uh, we actually, my husband and I recently had a SPECT image brain scan done, and we were actually just going to see if we could optimize our brain. There's no health issues that we're aware of. But then I heard, and it was just shocking to me that there was another way to measure the activity of the brain other than a SPECT scan. I, you know, you only know what you know. So can you explain how you're scanning brains with EEG over at Wave Neuro? Sure. Yeah. And there's, there's uh, numerous different modalities that are starting to merge. You know, there's spec scans, there's PET scans, there's fMRI, and, and we're using EEG. And so that stands for electroencephalogram. Um, and in the same way, an EKG is an electrophysiologic picture of the heart, an EEG is an electrophysiologic picture of the brain. And it, it's basically a way to... Uh, look at brain activity uh, over a number of different domains, time, space, frequency, uh, and amplitude. And we're able to glean quite a bit of useful information from, from these EEGs. They look like brain maps. And you can identify areas that are processing information very quickly and others that may be processing information more slowly, and both in terms of you know, geospatial resolution and in the terms of you know how often information is being processed, this gives uh, this gives us a lot of useful information. Uh, so it's um, there's many different ways to obtain the studies. Uh, we ourselves do what we call resting state eyes closed EEGs. There's also evoked potential eyes open EEGs, but we're looking for resting default state information for each individual. And just to delve a little bit into that. Um, you know, we all have a specified uh, dominant frequency or refresh rate, for lack of a better term. And so uh, we tend to process information anywhere from 8 to 13 times per second, or 8 to 13 hertz. That's what we call our alpha band. And uh, it tends to be something that you're born with and will have a dominant frequency throughout the day. Let's say in a hypothetical, you're an 11.8 hertz brain, and I might be a 9.5 hertz brain. Uh, it's just kind of where we're born. But whether it's through um, a physical trauma, like a blast injury or uh, emotional trauma of losing a loved one or even chemical trauma, if uh, we're uh, using hard drugs or um, you know, over drinking, uh, we may find clusters of neurons 
um, that start to fire either significantly too fast or too slow. And those tend to be the areas that we focus on in terms of trying to optimize, as, as you mentioned, uh, with the spec scan. And so that's been very informative for us and um, has led us down a number of different paths. But um, just to touch on, you you'd mentioned the spec scan. Uh, this is kind of a nuclear study where uh, we're injecting uh, radioactive isotopes, typically technetium-99, and then we're using what's called a scintigram to measure uh, the amount of uptake in different areas of the brain and the body. And so specific to brain scans, you're looking for um, blood flow and metabolic activity. And so uh, those are also very useful studies. Um, so, uh, so yeah, yeah I, I think you're seeing that uh, it's a rapidly evolving space and there's many different tools now uh, that clinicians can use to assess uh, brain function. Absolutely. And when we got ours done with the spec scan, so we scanned the brain, they saw the areas that they showed lower blood flow, and then we had a treatment plan. But what about what you're doing with your EEG? So from, from what I gather, you can pinpoint certain parts of the brain, even let's just say I definitely showed a traumatic brain injury from when I slipped um, on a pool deck um, 20 years, 20, maybe even 30 years ago, and hit my head. And so can your scans show like pinpoint what side of my head was hit? And then what exactly would you do as a treatment plan? How would it be different from maybe what I went through with the spec scan? Like, you know, here's what areas are operating low. Here's some, some maybe hyperbaric oxygen treatment therapy was one of the treatment plans, um, supplements. How, how are you different with, with what you're doing? Yeah, so, so the EEG is the first step in our protocol. And then we run those through um, some pretty sophisticated computational analytics. We have a team of physicians and scientists and engineers that will um, look at each image and then design a protocol uh, for each individual using a third technology called transcranial magnetic stimulation. And this is an FDA-approved device for uh, its FDA indications for depression and specifically treatment-resistant depression. Um, we're using it a little bit differently in that we're customizing the protocol to each individual. So in uh, a variety of scenarios, let's just say your traumatic brain injury and concussion was uh, in the right backhand side of the brain. We would actually navigate to that area and then uh, stimulate those neurons if they were firing too slow we would stimulate them at a rate that would cause them to speed up what we call excitatory stimulation. And if they were firing too fast, we would do inhibitory stimulation to try to bring it into synchrony with your dominant wavelength. And so I, I think when you sort of understand these unifying principles of brain activity, it's, it's kind of, of course, we would approach it that way, but it wasn't until these instruments were innovated that we could even look and, and see that these um, were abnormalities uh, that were happening. And so I, I think that's part of what's exciting. I think sometimes, um, you know, it, in the drudgery of day-to-day -day life, it feels like progress is slow. But um, there are real, I think, exciting innovations that are occurring um, that we can uh, transform these into technologies that can help uh, people uh, today, I think, is, is pretty exciting. It, it is so exciting. I just was... I kept stopping and taking notes because it, it went into something that I never thought of. Like I understood measuring blood flow, but then you're talking about 
the being able to measure the hertz. And so from all the scans that you've done, what are you seeing in the brains of like regular people like me uh, versus an elite athlete? So would a faster processing brain be better? Like, you know, an elite athlete. And can you look at someone and just say, oh, you know, that athlete looks like their brain is great, um, but then you put them in your treatment plan and you see something that doesn't show up. Can, can you learn something or what's surprising or shocking from when you investigate their brain? Yeah, these, are, these are great questions. And I, I try to avoid, um, I guess, too much comparison in terms of, of profile. And so there is a, a kind of, I guess, stereotype you would see uh, elite athletes do tend to be faster processors, and there's certainly advantages conferred uh, when you can take a lot of information and process it quickly. And so both, um, I'd say some of these groups, uh, elite athletes and a lot of the special operations, um, uh, military folks who come through, we tend to see um, uh, brain frequencies that are going to be above 10 hertz, uh, which means they can encode information uh, at a rate that's more than 10 times per second. And if you look at the bell curve of population, somewhere between uh, 9.8 to 10 hertz tends to be our average, our mean. Um, and so having being able to process more information means, um, for example, if you're a baseball player and somebody throws a, a pitch at you at very high velocity, um, the frames per second you're able to visualize maybe just a bit faster. So you may have a split second advantage over somebody who, uh, say is an 8.5 or 9 hertz frame. Um, so, you know, there are certain advantages. Uh, this is true, but, um, there are also other limitations. And so we've noted in many of the more creative, uh, types, um, whether they're writers or musicians, uh, many of them will have kind of a, a slower, uh, processing brain. And that's not necessarily a negative. You know, it, it tends to confer different advantages. And kind of a similar question we've gotten quite often is, do I have a perfect brain? And and the answer is really, I don't know that there's such a thing as a perfect brain. We measure across many different dimensions. And so even if you're a faster processing brain, we want to see something called coherence, which means um, the information from the back of the brain and the front of the brain are all kind of walking in lockstep. And if there's a significant mismatch in the amount of information that can be processed, um, people can have some certain deficits. Um, they may be more impulsive than they want to be. They uh, may be more prone to anger and frustration. And so those are things uh, that we try to identify and tune up if uh, they're becoming intrusive. Um, but yeah, it's a great question and fascinating. And I, I think we're just scratching the surface of what's to be learned. And what, what is shocking to you? Like, have you measured your brain? Were you surprised? Like, what, what is surprising <laughs> with this? Yeah. You know, for me, what was interesting is um, I, I, I do, when I first started learning about this and I got my, my brain image, um, the scientists immediately told me that I was profoundly sleep deprived, which I was. Um, and I have, I have five children. And so just, just by nature, kind of chasing them around, uh, I don't get as much sleep as I should. Um, but I've gotten better about that. And I think um, with many of the other um, guests that you've brought on, I think there's now um, the, the weight of the evidence supporting sleep as being fundamental to our health and our wellness. It's just overwhelming. And uh, yeah, if there is one message to help people's 
uh, overall well-being it's, it's get a really good night of sleep uh, so I've certainly changed uh, my behaviors and my habits but in terms of something that was surprising I would say as there's been more and more data coming in uh, as it relates to kind of sports injuries and, and concussions I've been surprised uh, the population that's emerged you would have thought football or boxing it's actually women's soccer uh, seems to be one where we're seeing a lot of uh, head injuries, and these tend to be um, subclinical, uh, cumulative type injuries from from heading to soccer ball from a very young age. Wow. And so I think, yeah, I think we're getting a lot smarter about that. I know uh, I have four girls, and uh, three of them are pretty avid soccer players. And um, uh, you know, I'm pleased to say most organized soccer is now not allowing headers until they get a bit older. And I think that that varies by region. Um, but that was, I think, quite illuminating that uh, we think of ver the very high impact discrete incidents where somebody loses consciousness uh, as being the stereotypical head injury. And certainly that is a group we're very concerned about. Um, but also these subclinical repeated, uh, I think what previously we would have considered very minor injuries. Um, it's, it's on our radar now. And I'll say that's true across a number of different professions. Uh, certainly in the military, our breachers and explosive ordnance disposal, um, even if they're at a minimum safe distance, the blast wave, um, we're sort of uh, reassessing uh, what the right safety protocols are. And so, but it's a good illustration of uh, as these new technologies emerge, there are many applications and we're becoming, I think, more situationally aware of how we might uh, protect each other and uh, sort of avoid some of the long-term implications of these kinds of injuries. Well, definitely. It's no longer just put on your helmet when you go ride your bike. I've got two girls, and, and they think I'm a little bit crazy with the brain, but I try and explain to them that, you know, the substance of the brain, it's like tofu in your skull. And I'm trying to explain, you shape that, and that's just your brain hitting your skull, right? So any type of even like a minor car accident, you know, it doesn't have to be a massive um, like car wreck. It's like if you get hit from behind, that that jarring could cause damage that they're showing on brain scans. So just to be aware of all the sports injuries and just taking care of, like I never once thought about what am I doing to protect my brain when I was growing up. Yeah, yeah, it's... It's interesting. And so we call those types of injuries, we call them coup, contra coup type injuries, where you go from an acceleration to a deceleration very quickly, and then the brain uh, may, may very transiently compress. But there can be some injury that occurs uh, depending on sort of the kinetics and the ballistics involved. Um, now, what's interesting uh, with our younger populations and the ability to recover, there's a lot more what we call neuroplasticity when we're younger and you can recover from these quicker and we're trying to learn, you know, what are ways, what are things we can do uh, to engage more plasticity and to encourage more recovery. And, and, and I don't think that we've cracked the code on um, either how to measure that or how to encourage uh, that kind of uh, recovery. Um, but I think we're starting to develop tools, instruments and biomarkers that are going to allow us to measure that. And, um, I'm hopeful, you know, that in the next 10 to 20 years, we'll have better answers than we have today. Um, but it's exciting to see at least this is garnering 
attention and we're getting more research dollars um, being channeled for these kinds of uh, research projects. Well, that's incredible. And that just brings me to the next question that, you know, in the past, a lot of these scams, they have the reputation of being costly. Even when I started looking at it, a lot of my friends started to send me messages and they're like, how much is this scam? Or, you know, um, and it's only for people who can afford it to go through the treatment plans. What are you seeing with the cost? Do you think eventually it'll be something that goes down in price and then eventually do you think it'll be free for everyone to be able to get a brain scan at our checkup or what, what do you think is going to be the future of this? Uh, you know, I hope that's the case. And, you know, part of our mission is to democratize um, neuroscience and, and brain health for, for everyone. Because um, once you see sort of uh, what's possible and even just the awareness of uh, how is my brain functioning, uh, everyone deserves to have that um, access. And so, uh, whereas I think these these nuclear scans like spec scans and fMRIs can cost thousands of dollars, um, EEGs are hundreds of dollars. And I think what we're trying to do is um, yeah, scale in a way where we can lower those costs, but also provide education uh, to physicians and clinicians and providers so that we can take these um, data points and um, provide information, translate that in a way that's very meaningful uh, to uh, patients and, and people out in the public. So, uh, so we're getting smarter, I think, every day. We're bringing in um, different thought leaders to identify ways uh, to take what's currently very complex information and distill it into um, some numerics and um, graphics that people can digest very quickly and easily. Definitely. It was such an eye-opening experience to just have a look at what's going on in our brains. We've done, definitely my brain was sleep deprived. That was the biggest thing that, that I wasn't aware of. And so changing some of my habits as well, even just getting another 45 minutes of sleep is, you know, you know going back to some of the health staples. Like what are, I know that you've talked about it. We all know sleep is so important for our brain health and diet um, I watched this um, Alzheimer's prevention program that was broadcast a couple of weeks ago, and it was talking about the fact that, you know, sleep, nutrition, all these things are now preventing Alzheimer's. So what are you seeing from your research? Is it, are these just the staples or is there anything else that we should be aware of for health and prevention to make sure that we live another 50 healthy years? Yeah, so there's, there's many things I think people can do uh, in, in terms of uh, prevention and endorsing their own good health. And um, you hit on an important one, sleep. And I, I think there's a lot of information uh, out there where people can learn just in terms of sleep hygiene, avoiding caffeine too late in the day, um, sleeping at the same time and waking up, at least trying to uh, every evening and morning. But there is one element that I think is starting to be better understood. Um, but just to reinforce for the audience, you know, a good night of sleep typically begins in the morning uh, when we establish our circadian rhythm. And uh, Nobel Prizes were awarded uh, a few years ago for kind of the discovery of, of blue light and how this establishes our circadian rhythm. So blue light is 450 to 500 nanometer light. Um, it's most present in uh, early morning sunlight. 
And just to give you a sense of it, it's about 70,000 to 100,000 lumen of blue light in the morning uh, outside. Mother Nature does a great job of uh, helping us along that way, but you actually have to get outside. And um, once that blue light strikes your retina, there's a chain reaction that occurs biologically where 14 to 16 hours later, there will be a spike of melatonin that is prepping you for sleep. And so you have to listen to that biological cue and then try to get into bed. You've got about 30 to 40 minutes. And if you do that, you'll very quickly get into um, deep, slow-wave sleep, which is the restorative elements of sleep. And we'll go more into that in a bit. But I think this is such an important question of other things we can do to help ourselves. There's really good scientific evidence now supporting, for example, transcendental meditation, um, which is, I, I think most of us know about mindfulness and breathing, and this is sort of incorporating uh, all of those good things. Um, and I think intuitively all of us know um, gratitude uh, is a, a positive reinforcer for our lives, but actually there's these new instruments we call gratitude journals where they found with fairly good evidence that you can reduce blood pressure and stress levels uh, just by taking the time in the morning and the evening uh, to think about what we're grateful for. And yeah, then... I've got mine right here. It's always next to my desk. Of course, I don't always write in it, but... <laughs> gratitude journal and, and it's one of those things that you open it up and you write something in it and I've been writing in this for years but since that's the research great. came out I thought well I better do it and wow that's wonderful um, yeah and so these are all things that are free they're available to us it's just about um, uh, being intentional and deliberate about it and uh, the last one I'd mentioned, it, it's a bit more abstract, but um, I was having a conversation with uh, the former CEO of Aetna, Mark Berlini, who was saying um, he would rather spend $20 uh, getting somebody who is isolated and depressed to you know, a, a community center where they can develop some new friendship because um, there's very good data to support connectedness as being very protective against a lot of the uh, ills uh, whether it's uh, depression, whether it's uh, memory loss, whether it's cardiovascular endpoints, um, you know, this is one of the things. It, it's sort of so it's kind of an abstract term to say connectedness, but I think these relationships, both in terms of cultivating positive relationships, but also removing toxicity. Um, but to to his point, uh, rather than spending a thousand dollars on pharmaceuticals. It's, it's just much more sensible to spend money to connect people so that they have friendships and, and positive relationships around them. And that's something we can all do for ourselves as well. So, um, so yeah, I, I think there's a multitude of things that we can do to encourage ourselves to have uh, better wellness, better longevity, and better quality of life. That's wonderful. And you mentioned the sleep part. So what have you done differently with your sleep? Um, you going to bed the same time every night and having the same wake up. What, what things have you changed? Yeah. So it's interesting. I started measuring my sleep using there's wearable devices now. And so I'm, I'm wearing a whoop device, yeah. um, but there's also an aura ring. And um, I think the Apple watch, um, the newer ones are doing a really good job of measuring sleep as well. And, and so what I learned, it, so there's all kinds of really good advice out there. Um, there's a researcher who I, I think is one of the most brilliant 
and most eloquent speakers I've heard. His name is Matthew Walker. He wrote a book called Why We Sleep. I'd encourage everyone to read that book. Um, I'm not paid to say that, but um, it, it's really, I think, one of the more informative pieces of literature out there. Uh, but what I learned for myself, because uh, I was doing a lot of the right things, I was getting blue light in the morning. Um, you know, I don't smoke, I don't drink. and But the one factor I learned that was keeping me from getting really good sleep was uh, eating too late at night. And so a simple behavioral change where uh, I try to have uh, dinner before seven o'clock. So ideally I'm starting around six. And if I just stop, uh, I tend to get much more REM sleep and slow wave sleep. Uh, but I wouldn't have known that if I, if I wasn't measuring this every day. Right. And so, um, so that made uh, a significant difference for me. And so uh, there is kind of this movement towards quantified self uh, measuring sort of our steps, measuring our, uh, uh, kind of how much we're eating or consuming. And um, there's many different dimensions that we can measure. Heart rate variability is, is a big metric in uh, the wellness and human performance space. And so I think being conscious of sleep quality uh, is another one that should be right up there in, in our top uh, criterion for um, protecting our health and making sure we're doing the right things. And it's funny because I never looked at my brain and I thought my sleep was great until you measure, until you actually look. That's what was shocking. I thought, oh, my brain's great. You know, I was all excited. They're, they're going to tell me I've got the model brain because I thought exercise was enough, but it showed that sleep wasn't, was impacting my brain. And so it's just crazy until you actually look and measure you have no idea really what you're doing for these yeah. parts of our body but what about memory um i mentioned on some of my other podcasts that i actually uh, showed a low score on recall memory on the spec scan they did some memory tests for us and do you think that it's just that memory is a muscle and that you know maybe people that practice like you said some elite athletes they're doing things over and over again, they're going to be better at performance than people that aren't. Do you think memory is just like a muscle or do you think some people have bad memories or they might be showing cognitive decline, something like that? It, and so this is a very multifactorial question. And, and so certainly the memory that you're born with, the more you practice that similar to a muscle, um, the more you can strengthen. I, I think there's, there's certainly truth in that. But um, I think if we're looking at the biological model, there's, there's other factors we're learning about. And so even, for example, um, genetics, we're now learning there's um, what we'll call apolipoprotein E4. And this tends to be a marker that increases risk for memory loss as we get older and is a risk factor for Alzheimer's development. And so I think even within our DNA, there are factors that we can look at that may predispose us to uh, certain conditions or another. And so uh, asking the question, you know, what can we do to improve them uh, from a strictly evidence-based medical perspective? Um, there are medications that are available. Um, I'm not a huge fan of the medications, but just to be um, as a, uh, scientific basis possible. Uh, there, there are some uh, pharmaceuticals that have come out on the market, whether it's uh, the Nazapil, Aricept, Exelon, 
um, and, and there are specific scenarios where that may be helpful. Uh, and there are other non-pharmaceutical things people can do, uh, whether it's, um, I would say the one I'm, um, I would endorse the most is just uh, learning something new. And specifically, there are certain cross-hemispheric activities, whether it's learning a new musical instrument, uh, learning kind of something on uh, related to art, whether it's uh, drawing, um, anything that's related to task acquisition, where your your brain is um, being asked to do something new and novel. Um, there's uh, a philosophy we call uh, Hebbian learning that was born uh, from neuroscience, geez, I think 40 or 50 years ago, that says, uh, as our neurons fire, they wire. And so if you're if you're trying to challenge yourself to learn something new and different, um, it, we believe that it may be inducing a certain amount of neuroplasticity that uh, is good for your overall health. Not to mention, it's always fun, you know, if you're learning to play the piano or uh, the guitar. Um, I think that uh, both being able to read music and creating something uh, that's beautiful um, engages different parts of the brain and um, hopefully will be fun for the individual too. Well, I like that answer because it, it kind of gives me hope because doing these podcasts, it's actually interviewing people. You do a lot of research and it's taking me into different pathways as I'm helping other people learn about you. It's quite an education, probably more than I got at university. So hopefully it's helping my brain. But um, what about Alzheimer's? You mentioned it a little bit, but can you spot Alzheimer's in the brain from your EEG scans or is there a pattern for it that you're seeing? Yeah, so EEGs, it would, it would be, I would be misrepresenting things to say that you could diagnose Alzheimer's based on an EEG. Um, we don't have, in medicine, we call it a, a pathic mnemonic tool, meaning something that as a single tool could make a diagnosis. Um, to my knowledge, at least, uh, we don't have that tool in our arsenal yet. Um, it tends to be a diagnosis of exclusion. Some of the, the more sophisticated neuroimaging tools we have, uh, like high-resolution MRI, you can look for... Um, markers that would suggest Alzheimer's, but it tends to be um, a clinical diagnosis based on symptoms people are experiencing, um, genetic predispositions that we might be able to identify, um, and then uh, some of the neuroimaging technologies that we have. But one area that I think is, is worth highlighting, um, and, and maybe something that you've read about in your travels, but um, there was a Norwegian researcher named uh, Macon Nettergaard who discovered something called the glymphatic system. Um, and, and so uh, there is a, a totally separate technology called uh, two-photon excitation microscopy where you could look sort of at brain activity, structural brain activity in real time. And what she found was when we sleep, and specifically when we get into deep sleep, um, this glymphatic system, many of our cells uh, shrink in size and create large channels whereby cerebral spinal fluid will wash away the oxidative stress and metabolites through, throughout the day. Two of those metabolites you may have heard of, they're called beta amyloid and tau. And those are the proteins that deposit in your brain. And when they phosphorylate, create something called neurofibrillatory tangles, which will disrupt a lot of the neural pathways in your brain and ultimately could lead to Alzheimer's disease. Um, that was a significant discovery because 
uh, in a separate study, when you, when you take this uh, down the pathway, uh, some researchers out of Washington University in St. Louis um, sleep-deprived individuals for just one day, and then they did a lumbar puncture and measured their cerebral spinal fluid, and they found significant increases in tau and beta amyloid. And so you think that was just one night of sleep deprivation. If you do that for somebody who's chronically sleep-deprived through sleep apnea or just primary insomnia, um, you start to get really concerned. And so the weight of the evidence is leading us towards sleep being a very significant factor that would lead uh, to cognitive decline. Um, and just to be totally transparent about it, that is fairly predictable. On EEG, we know there's some great work out of NYU and a researcher, Leslie Pritchett, who left NYU to go to BrainScope. Um, but by decade, you can see EEG slowing, what we call, so we talked about alpha frequency earlier. Um, many of these neurons who are operating uh, in the alpha range will slow down and move into what's called theta. And so that slowing tends to be fairly predictable over time. And so there's not much we can do um, to change the hands of time. Um, I think we can accept a certain amount of slowing is going to occur. But if we challenge ourselves to learn new things and uh, really remain as active as we can, we can do our best to slow down that process. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I think that... Uh, being able to get to, or we're starting to learn about root cause mechanisms that are leading to cognitive decline. And if getting more restorative sleep, you know, the, the REM sleep and slow wave sleep to allow our body to refresh itself and for those uh, types of proteins to um, be washed out. Uh, and some people have called it the, the sanitization system uh, of our central nervous system. Uh, it tends to reframe the discussion a little bit. And I think people uh, can be a bit more passionate about, okay, um, I'm not going to look at my phone and get that last email out at midnight. I'm actually going to go to sleep uh, between nine and 10. So, um, so yeah, it's, uh, uh, I, I think it's a new world in terms of uh, the types of uh, mechanisms that we're, that we're discovering. Um but that's one where there's a lot of emerging science that is, uh, I think, quite fascinating. It really is like when you were naming the proteins and talking about the tangling process, I had recently heard about that. And that just takes it to another level when you're actually saying these are two proteins that are identified in, in people with Alzheimer's. Is that correct? They're, they're the proteins that are showing up in the brains. And it's not just like I've heard of, you know, we go to sleep and our brains get washed. Well, that what does that mean to me? Well, it's washing out these two bad proteins that could be causing cognitive decline. That makes me not want to look at my phone at night. Not just, oh, I need to wash my brain. Like there's no... You know, you have to have some sort of like implication or something to change your habits. There has to be something that, that makes me say, well, yeah, I'm not going to do this because the, the risk is too high. So once I know what the risk is, because you've named the two, the proteins and you've named that, that, that they're there after one night of sleep deprivation, but when we get a good night's sleep, it's getting washed out. That just makes it real, right? To, at least to me, it made it 
so that I want to get a good night's sleep rather than just, oh, I need to get a good night's sleep and wash my brain. It doesn't have enough meaning. Yeah. And, and just so people don't, uh, we don't create some profound anxiety if people miss a good night of sleep or two or three, um, while it's a, a necessary component, um, it doesn't mean somebody is doomed or anything like that. There's a lot of other factors that go into it. You know, the other, it seems to me to be a critical component of that is uh, inflammation. And, and so there's a lot of research now, and I'm not an expert in this area, so I don't want to um, overstep, but uh, there are, there's a lot of research into nutrition science and the gut microbiome and things that can be pro-inflammatory and anti-inflammatory. And as we're learning about that, it's another area where I think the science is advancing quite rapidly. Um, just being very conscious and mindful about the type of nutrients we're putting into our body, I think is important. And uh, the more deliberate we are about putting high quality food uh, into the system, I think we can do a better job of protecting ourselves and uh, the family that we love. Absolutely. And just to kind of bring this into to a close as we're getting to the end of our time here, I was speaking with your public relations manager, Sean Bartlett, and when I was preparing, he was giving me some great ideas as to the direction you're going. And he let me know something that's important to you is to find a more functional way of diagnosing mental health issues in the future. And he actually shared with me an article that was from the former National Institute of Mental Health Director, Thomas Insall. And it talks about the new direction of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for Mental Health Disorders and how it's changing. So how is your work with the brain helping to take the subjectivity out of mental health and aiming for a more new functional way of diagnosing mental health? <laughs> oh, I have to uh, compliment Sean. I'm, I'm really glad that you brought that up because um, I think it's a really important discussion to have. Uh, and so the traditional method um, of sort of mental health diagnosis involves what we call behavioral science, where uh, somebody can talk to a psychiatrist or a mental health provider, and based on uh, the symptoms they, and the cluster of symptoms, they may receive a diagnosis, whether it's major depressive disorder or generalized anxiety disorder or dysthymia. And, you know, what we've been learning, and we talk about, you know, we talked about earlier about the distinction between spec scans versus EEGs versus fMRIs. And there are sort of these unifying principles that are starting to emerge where we can start incorporating biological science with the behavioral science and the genetic science, and then have a more thoughtful discussion uh, around what somebody's experiencing um, in terms of their, their mood and overall wellness. And I know for our veterans and many of our patients to come in and to be able to see in a 2D and 3D image that there's a cluster of neurons that are misfiring that may be responsible for the symptoms that they're experiencing. First, I think it destigmatizes them that this was not an issue of willpower or discipline or suck it up, um, that there was something real that was happening. Um, and then second, it tends to be fairly motivating that, okay, now how do we tackle this? And there's many different ways you can do that. And it doesn't have to be our technology, I, although I think we're, uh, more and more um, becoming a part of that discussion. But all the things that you've touched on, whether it's, um, you know, being very thoughtful about nutrition, uh, exercising smarter, getting proper sleep, 
Um, there are other tools like neurofeedback, um, just educating yourself on all of this. I think what you're doing is so important in terms of making this a normal part of our discussion and everyday thinking. Um, you know, the same way we think about, um, you know, if you break a bone and you see it on your x-ray, you don't think, oh, why did you break your bone? There's no stigma behind that, you know, in the same way, if we can get some neuroimaging and see, you know, there's uh, some neurons that are firing here. Um, it becomes a much easier discussion to have. Um, so as I think the science starts to emerge and, um, it, you know, it doesn't matter what kind of imaging you get, but the fact that um, the scientific community is starting to recognize uh, that from a very multidisciplinary perspective, uh, we're starting to see these types of patterns, uh, whether it's brainwave activity or metabolic dysfunction, uh, that can be leading to uh, these symptom clusters. Um, I think it's a really important discussion and uh, it's one that's in constant evolution. But uh, yeah, Dr. Incel, I think, was a visionary in terms of saying, um, we need to move out, move out of the dark ages of just labeling somebody and start moving into modern times where we can couple that uh, with uh, great neuroimaging and more thoughtful tools uh, to help serve our patients who uh, may be looking for help. What about some final thoughts from you on where you'd like to see health and wellness go with your mission and purpose that, you know, instead of going into um, being a priest, you went into medicine and now what, what's your vision for where you see this all going? Well, you know, I would hope in the next 10 to 20 years, uh, we completely reframe the discussion around brain health and mental health. And it's a destigmatized discussion where people cannot be afraid of, uh, I wonder what people are going to think. Uh, because, you know, we talked about um, before, you know, people are asking, you know, do I have the perfect brain? You know, the truth is almost nobody has a perfect brain and we're all imperfect in our own unique way. And we should embrace that, you know, it makes us unique. Um, but I think now, you know, the capability of having those honest discussions and being thoughtful about how we might improve ourselves. Um, that I think is a future we can all be excited about. And so there's a long way to get there. I think we have to wrap those concepts around with very robust, rigorous academic science. Um, but fortunately, we're putting the time and energy and bandwidth into um, being able to produce these uh, very reproducible, um, robust studies. And um, yeah, so, so that's, I think, a fundamental part of our mission and our message. Well, I love it. I want to thank you so much, Dr. Wan, for your time today to explain the mind-blowing technology that you're using over at Wave Neuroscience. If anyone wants to learn more, I've put all the links in the show notes, but it's waveneuro.com. They can find you on Facebook. They can find you on LinkedIn, wave-neuroscience, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Wave Neuro. Thanks so much for your time, Eric. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. Have a wonderful day. If you're enjoying the Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning podcast, please don't forget to subscribe so you'll stay up to date with our new episode. While you're there, please feel free to give us a review or a five-star rating as it helps others find us. For more information on our programs, books, and tools for schools and the workplace, visit us at www.achieveit360.com.